Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has now entered its second week. The world has been stunned by images of invading convoys of tanks, aerial bombardments of urban areas, untrained civilians flocking to defend their country, images of two armies attacking and defending territory, a type of theatre of war that has more in common with World War II than more recent conflicts the world has seen. Here to discuss this, I'm joined by Mary Caldor, Professor of Global Governance and Director of the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit, in the London School of Economics. Mary's book, New and Old Wars, first published in 1999, reconceptualized modern warfare, arguing that the new wars of the 1980s and 90s had to be understood in the context of globalization, that is, political, economic, military, and cultural interconnectedness. These new wars could be characterized by goals, methods, and finances. In summary, there has been a turn to identity politics away from geopolitical aims. Methods increasingly draw on counterinsurgency or guerrilla warfare. And we have seen the development of a globalized war economy, which contrasts with the highly centralized economies of, for example, the two world wars. In the same year that new and old wars came out, Mary called for intervention in Kosovo on humanitarian grounds, a position she later came to revise, not because she had changed her mind about warfare, but because of the practical aspects of implementation. It is hard, she said, to find a single example of humanitarian intervention during the 1990s that can be unequivocally declared a success. Mary Caldor, welcome to the podcast. Hello. I wanted us to start by revisiting your concept of new wars. For listeners who haven't read your book, can you first outline why you felt it was necessary to define warfare as new? Yes, in retrospect, I wonder if I shouldn't have used another term. It was very controversial, but that was good because it drew attention to the ideas. What I wanted to show was that contemporary warfare operates under a very different logic. Um, from traditional wars. Traditional wars are, if you like, a, a deep-rooted political contest. I'm not sure if traditional wars ever really existed, but that's how we think of wars, a deep-rooted political contest that can only be solved by violence. And, you know, as Clausewitz, who was the most important strategist of old wars, put it, Old wars always tended to the extreme as each side tried to win, as the politicians tried to gain their aims, as the soldiers tried to disarm their opponents, and as hatred and passion was unleashed among the people. New wars are very different, and I sometimes increasingly think of them as a sort of social condition. They are a situation where you don't have regular forces confronting each other. You have a mixture of non-state groups, militias, criminal gangs, warlords. Um, and their interest actually is violence itself rather than winning or losing. Uh, they make money from violence. They loot 
people's houses, they pillage, they set up checkpoints, they kidnap people for money, they war provides a cover for all kinds of smuggling activities. So they partly do it for money and partly they do it for politics. They try to gain political control uh, in the name of very extremist ideologies. They, they could be ethnic nationalism, they could be religious fundamentalism. And violence is a moment when you mobilise people. If you're being killed because you're Sunni or Shia, Serb or Croat, suddenly that identity becomes very important. And what we're seeing is these, what you might call forever wars, Syria, uh, Congo, Afghanistan, where this is really a way of life and goes on and on and on and on. And that's really what I was trying to say was that new wars have a different logic. And it, rather than tending to the extreme, the levels of violence are rather lower. They tend to persistence. They never end. So what might be the archetype for this kind of new war? Well, I originally um, came up with the idea observing what was going on in Bosnia. And Bosnia, unusually, there was a peace agreement at the end. But what the peace agreement did was really legitimise the warlords. So if you go to Bosnia today, even though there isn't fighting, there's... It's as though the war never ended. The warlords are entrenched and continue their predatory activities. But Syria is a very good contemporary example that just goes on and on and on and on. We've almost forgotten about Syria. Well, just going back to Bosnia for a bit before we go on to Syria. Um, now, how do you feel then about the increasingly worrying indications of violence there? Um, and I'm referring to that increasing rhetoric of identity that you that you're talking about, that you, you that you point to as an essential part of new wars. Do you are you worried that this might be leading to somewhere else, somewhere more violent? Yes, I mean I'm worried. You, yeah, obviously, and obviously there might be fallout from the Ukrainian conflict, but obviously Republika Srpska, Dodik, who has been there forever. I mean, I even met Dodik during the war years ago, um, really wants to stay in power, and he wants to stay in power mainly for corrupt reasons. He's become immensely rich. All the ethnic warlords are able to take all kinds of state handouts. And every time he's thwarted, he threatens to uh, withdraw his little bit of Bosnia. Bosnia was divided into two bits, one which was Serbia and the other which was Croat and Bosniak. Um, so, yeah, you know, the violence could flare up again. Remember, we deployed hundreds of thousands of troops and gave so much money to Bosnia just to keep it in this dysfunctional state. So really, you're talking about uh, another forever war? It is a forever war. It's maybe not, it, it isn't outright violence, but it's only kept under control by the international presence. And you referred earlier to part of the new wars is, you, you might say now, is more like, a social condition. There might not be actual explicit violence, uh, but there is a certain structure there that, that maintains the possibility of violence. Would, would you agree with that? 
Yes, I would say there is violence as well, um, in the sense that it, you know, we talk um, very much about populist authoritarianism and the kind of populist authoritarianism that we're observing today is really very similar to the social condition that I describe in New Wars. It's a mixture of crony capitalists, oligarchs, like in uh, Russia, um, people who make money uh, out of politics, out of the state, um, ethnic nationalism, and I would say it has a very strong gendered element. And, you know, that's characteristic of the wars we observe. It's characteristic of Assad, Syria. It's characteristic of Bosnia. It's characteristic of Russia. It's actually characteristic of elements of Brexit. It's characteristic of the Trump phenomenon. Um, so, and does it necessarily include violence? Well, it includes racism and extremism and in the places where, if you like, violence is festering. There are human rights abuses and there's extreme social and economic injustices. Yes, absolutely. Um, structural, systemic violence. Um, and yes, you could add your observation about identity politics to all of this, where uh, which is so central to your conception of new wars, and you've become increasingly vindicated in in the centrality of, of identity politics. And this, you mentioned, that can be characterised as drawing on visions of the past, which were often overly nostalgic, away from visions of the future. And again, we saw that in in all the in in, in everything you just mentioned, the Trump phenomena, the Brexit referendum, which harked back to various golden ages from the empire to the blitz. Um, do you feel that identity politics have become more crucial in global politics? And what does this say uh, for future outbreaks of war? Well, both has been happening. I think crony capitalists um, frame their activities in identity politics. That's what Putin does. Putin and the gang around him can be understand as, understood as a sort of kleptocratic system that emerged after the end of communism. We hoped that the end of centrally planned economies would lead to bourgeois capitalism. Actually, it led to kleptocracy. And that kleptocracy is, because he wants to stay in power, he appeals to identity. He talks about the external threat. He talks about Russia. He talks about Russian nostalgia. So identity politics in that sense is very much linked to this new type of authoritarianism. On the other hand, you're also seeing an upsurge in civil society, in, in you know, Black Lives Matter, in opposition to all of this, and in, you know, when you think about Ukraine, the appeal that the uh, Ukrainian ambassador to the UN made yesterday was about universal human rights. Yeah. So we're seeing both. 
Ah, uh, yes. Well, that's very interesting. Um, now, while while Russia was amassing troops on the border, I mean, before it actually invaded, you commented that the threatening war looked more like the 1930s than anything we've seen since, and certainly more conventional than Russia's previous incursion into Donbass in 2014. So can you explain what is less new about the current war in Ukraine? Well, I was very surprised that... Um, Putin would engage in this kind of traditional conventional war. I think if you study the evolution of new wars, you realize it's happened because the use of conventional force has become more and more difficult. Uh, the Second World War was unbelievably bloody. You know, millions died, 70 million or something like that. And it, people have, you know, People like Mao Zedong or Che Guevara knew they could never win against conventional force. And so actually you've seen very few conventional wars of the World War II type since the end of the Second World War. And I thought that Putin was a clever guy, horrible but clever, who understood that. What he did in 2014 was straight out of the New Wars playbook. In 2014, when the Ukrainians wanted to establish a democracy, he persuaded separatists. He tried all over the Russian-speaking areas, but only succeeded in Donetsk and Luhansk of getting separatists to seize um, administrative buildings and then uh, impose, and then try to impose control through really expelling all the Ukrainian population and claiming a sort of pure Russian ethnic uh, state. This was a perfect new wars. And in fact, Gerasimov, his chief of staff, the chief of staff of the Russian Armed Forces, wrote an article called Nonlinear War, in which he made the argument that you can destabilize a country through... A, this kind of activity through a mixture of using special forces, what they call political technology, that's interference in social media, that like what we saw with Brexit and Trump. This is the way to destabilize a country, and this is the new type of warfare. And I thought that Putin understood how difficult conventional war is. You know, you can be incredibly destructive, and that's what he's being. But it's very difficult to do what the famous strategist Thomas Schelling called compellence, make people do what you want to do, because all forms of um, military force are terribly lethal. You know, you can have an um, IED, uh, uh, an, an, an improvised explosive device that can knock out tanks. You, you see this with the Molotov cocktails. You can, a woman drives past a tank and throws a Molotov cocktail. That's going to happen to Russians all the time in Ukraine. So it would be incredible. Even if uh, the Russians succeed in taking Kiev, they're not going to control Ukraine. You can't control a country where everyone is against you. Um, and so I was surprised because I thought it was such a foolhardy thing to do, which indeed it has turned out to be. And um, it makes me think Putin's a little bit mad. 
Uh, so that's what you think the explanation is, that he's reached for this old type of war uh, because he's not um, assessing things rationally. Well, he could. I mean, the only rational explanation, but I would, but I would have thought it would have been done in a different way, is that he wants to turn Ukraine into something like Syria. He wants it to be a forever war because that's preferable to democracy. Ah, uh, so it's just a case of destabilizing it in any manner he can. He's reaching for all the tools in the kit. Yes, but this seems, you know, this seems very drastic and has had incredibly drastic consequences, which is why, and his talk of using nuclear weapons is extremely frightening. It's It certainly is. I mean, one way I suppose you can you can think about it as a is a type of hybrid conflict because there are very many elements of what you categorize as as a new war. You know, there are the information warfare, the propaganda, the cyber attacks. Um, and you wrote once that one of the defining aspects of new wars is one which armed groups have more to gain from the violence itself than from winning. So I wonder if you think that applies to Russia here. Might there, be a val might there be a value to Putin in merely inflicting such violence, uh, whether that's, I don't know, setting himself up as an anti-Western leader or rallying other authoritarian regimes to his banner? Can you see that? Well, I think that was exactly what he did in Donetsk and Luhansk. He set up militias that were interested in violence for its own sake. That's what I was saying about the logic of the social condition. It's a condition in which violence is a method of making money and doing politics. Um, this doesn't seem to be very logical from that point of view. This does seem to be an attempt to impose a conventional war to, to control Ukraine. It may be that in the end, he's quite happy if Ukraine becomes this long-term war. After all, think about the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. They were, they were conventional invasions. The Americans were trying to do the same thing that Putin is trying to do in Ukraine. They were rather more successful than Putin because actually the Iraqis and the Afghans initially welcomed them. But what the Americans didn't understand was they didn't control either country. And they, did a, they went on attacking the remnants of the opposition, which was very foolhardy because it produced resistances in both countries. And in both countries, you have a long-term war of the kind I've been talking about. So he might have been trying to do that in Ukraine. And, of course, you've mentioned Syria as a forever war, and he's been fighting on that front for the past seven years in, in a very active way with an airbase um, and, and practically daily activity. And that's, as you've described, very much a new war in... It, including in its combination of globalization so many so many international actors are present and the fragmentation and as in terms of the militias so what do you see him bringing from that theater of war to his current actions in ukraine well i think what's really disturbing is the way that every norm has been 
violated in Syria. Uh, they've used chemical weapons. Uh, they've bombed schools and hospitals. Um, and it's very difficult to believe that these haven't been done deliberately to uh, bring civilians, uh, to make civilians submit, as it were, to their will, which doesn't work. Uh, so it's a continuous process. I have to say Russia's not the only country. I mean, the US has bombed hospitals, even though they now take a very strong position against uh, the bombing of civilians. Yes, we, we've seen um, lots of uh, violations in, in Syria from, from many sides. Um, uh, but Putin does seem to make it a, a regular practice. Um, and and we've seen, for example, it, it, the invasion was preceded by the shelling of a, of a kindergarten in, in Ukraine. And, and so, yes, it, it seems like there is a playbook there, uh, which is deeply worrying. Um, but I wanted to bring it uh, to the international community, which has responded in various ways. For example, we had an essay in New Lines this week reporting the provision of Polish fighter jets uh, for the war. How does this provision of arms, as well as other responses from sanctions to the UN General Assembly's response, how, does, how do all of them fit into your conception of new wars? That's, um, I mean, of course, this isn't really a new war at the moment. Let's be clear. Uh, this is a conventional invasion. Um, what I'm saying is that it could construct, end up constructing a new war. And in new war situations, you have a very different approach uh, to addressing war. Uh, than you, you don't try to oppose force with force. What you try to do is to create safe zones uh, where people can escape. Uh, you try to negotiate at different levels, especially at local levels. Uh, you use international peacekeepers to protect civilians from violence. Those are kind of typical new war approaches. I could say more about that. In this situation, we're talking about a very different approach, which is much more conventional. It's supporting the Ukrainian resistance. It's imposing sanctions on the Russian regime. Um, my and I would like my main thought is that. Um, on sanctions, I think there is a problem that it hurts the Russian people. You know, what we've seen in the last few weeks is an enormous upsurge of opposition in Russia. There have been protests in over 50 cities, and the protests are continuing. Despite the most horrible legislation being brought in, they've arrested thousands of protesters and brought in legislation which would give them 15 years in prison. And many prominent people have also come out against the war. Um, if the sanctions result in the oligarchs replacing Putin, then they will have been worthwhile. They're, they're if you like, nuclear sanctions, because they've actually frozen 
Russia's central bank assets, something that's never been done before. Uh, and I don't see how you get out of this war except through the fall of Putin. It's so extreme what's happening. Um, I don't see how Ukraine can win. I mean, the most that can happen is that it morphs into a new war. But can the West sit by forever while it morphs into a new war? Um, the, the thing that hasn't been emphasised enough, I think, is the issue of human rights. The war is often treated as though it's an old war and it's a geopolitical conflict between the West. So a lot of people are now saying we must strengthen defence spending in the West, though no one is yet prepared to go directly to Ukraine's support. Uh, some Tory MPs are calling for a no-fly zone, as are many people in Ukraine, and I have. And of course, no one is ready to do that because they're afraid of nuclear war. And so we're in a very sort of difficult and complicated situation. Uh, but what I think is missing is the human rights dimension. I'd like to see that much more foregrounded. I'd like to see us talking much more about the human rights of the Ukrainian resistance, the human rights of Ukrainian children, the human rights of the protesters in Russia, and um, talk about the ways in which um, justice can be uh, introduced for the crimes that are currently being committed in Ukraine. Yes, I just wanted to ask, to come back to something I said in my introduction, uh, that you later revised your support for military intervention in Kosovo. Would you say that Kosovo wasn't a success? Uh, because it's certainly seen as the quintessential success story for humanitarian intervention, certainly in contrast to subsequent attempts that you've mentioned, like Iraq or even Libya. Well, I don't think Iraq was a humanitarian intervention, and let's be absolutely clear about that. That was an invasion by the US of Iraq. Um, there was no humanitarian crisis in Iraq at the time. Let's On Kosovo, I'm still in favour of the intervention, don't get me wrong. Uh, what I felt was wrong were the means. You can't protect civilians on the ground through bombing. And actually, you end up violating human rights yourself. Yes. So two or 3,000 people were killed by the bombs. Um, and what was more, I think, Milosevic accelerated ethnic cleansing under the cover of the bombing so that you were left with a very polarised Kosovo. I think exactly the same is true of Libya. Uh, Libya was a humanitarian intervention. The UN Security Council resolution was called it responsibility to protect. But again, they used bombing. And you can't protect people on the ground using, uh, using bombs. No. They, they were much more careful about civilian deaths, but it but they allied with the militias on the ground who did cause civilian deaths. Now, the one thing I'd say about Libya, and that's very relevant to Ukraine today, that what the bombs did do was to create a no-fly zone. 
So although you've had a long war in Libya, the casualties haven't been anything like the casualties in Syria, where the regime and Russia have been bombing with impunity and killing thousands of people. So, you know, I think there was a case at the beginning of the Syria war for a no-fly zone. Um, and it's a really tricky issue in relation to Ukraine. I really don't know the answer, honestly, because Putin is so mad, he'll take any provocation. He could be mad enough to use nuclear weapons. So at the same time, are we willing to sit by while children, kindergartens, hospitals are being bombed? Well, and you've talked about how bloody and destructive World War II was. Can you imagine a return to that type of warfare? Is it something you fear? I don't. I mean, we have it already. I mean, people, nobody, you know, the bombing of ISIS in northern Iraq and Syria, it was just terrible. They reduced towns like Mosul and Raqqa to rubble. People on my team have interviewed locals afterwards and they hate the West much more than ISIS because the West destroyed their cities and killed thousands of people. ISIS killed a few people and was in a very horrible way and was hugely repressive, but didn't destroy everything. So, you know, what we're seeing in Kharkiv, in Kherson today is World War II type war. So what you're really saying to me is, could, I, could we see a world war? I don't think we could because nobody wants it. Uh, and um, But nevertheless, you know, if, if Putin really takes, I don't think Putin will attack the West because he knows he doesn't have enough forces and never could. So I don't think we'll have a World War II situation if what you mean is that everybody's involved. Unless, of course, he starts to use nuclear weapons, which isn't World War II, it's World War Three of all the movies. Well, Mary Caldor, thank you very much for your time. You can find Mary on Twitter at Caldor M and read her classic book, which we've discussed in this podcast, New and Old Wars, in its third edition from 2013. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us and we'll see you next week. 